in May of 1956, I was completing my junior year of high school. I'd saved up enough money to buy my first car, and I bought a 1947 Chevrolet. I had them put that picture up there because most of you wouldn't know what a 47 Chevrolet looked like. Mine didn't look that good, trust me. And the gear shift, of course, was standard. It was on the steering column, and it had a tendency to pop out of second gear, and I had to hold it in second gear. Barbara and I had begun, thanks, Taz. Barbara and I had begun dating the February before. We lived in a small town of about 28,000 people. We walked everywhere we went. But having this car, <laughs> it was great. Now we could drive. The particular evening I want to tell you about, it was a Friday evening, and I was going to pick Barbara off from work at around 9 o'clock when she got off. And I would drive her home. She would change her clothes, and we would go to the jerk, the Junior Educational Recreation Center. I have no idea what those words meant or why it was called that. But it was in an office building in downtown uh, where we lived, and it was on the second floor. It had a huge dance floor. Uh, I had a jukebox and tables around the floor and then a place to get some snacks. And Barbara and I loved to dance. And we were good. You know, <laughs> doesn't look like it now, but we jitterbugged. We were good. But I digress. Um, I picked her up at 9 o'clock and she got on the, the passenger side and slid across that bench seat. And I shifted gears and we headed off to her house. And we talked about the things that sweethearts talk about uh, when they're in high school. We got to a road that was leading to her house. It was a four-lane road, and in my uh, rear window, I saw a car pull up, headlights, and a distinct body style. And it was a friend of mine who drove his parents' cars. He drove a, a parents' car. He drove a 1955 Chevrolet. Well, I turned the corner in the right lane, and, and uh, he pulled around as well, and uh, he went into the left lane, and, and we loved to race on our city streets in those days. And, but let's face it, that 47 Chevrolet was a tank. It would go from zero to 60 in about a half an hour. <laughs> um, the only hope I had was to keep him behind me. So when he pulled into the left lane, I pulled into the left lane to keep him back. And then he pulled into the right lane, and I pulled into the right lane. And we did that for about, an, about a half a mile or a mile leading up to Barb's home. The, the street narrowed to a two-lane street. And I turned on my turn signal to pull into Barbara's uh, driveway at Barbara's house when all of a sudden the inside of that car exploded with a pulsating red light. I'd made one tragic mistake. I'd forgotten that our police department used the same kind of car as my friend drove. <laughs> so as I sat there with that policeman writing that ticket for you know, reckless driving, and Barbara's parents on the front porch. <laughs> I, I felt rather foolish. Well, I acted like a fool. I, you know, I should feel foolish. You ever been there? Ever done silly things, uh, silly tragedies, we might call them, and end up looking like a fool? And we, we don't like that, to look like a fool before family and friends. But if looking like a fool before family and friends is a silly tragedy, then I would submit to you that looking like a fool before God is a spiritual tragedy. And the question is, is that possible? And the answer is yes. 
Some years ago in my reading and study of Scripture, I came across a passage that God used in my life as a mirror. And what I saw in the mirror of the Word of God I, about myself, I didn't like. It revealed some attitudes and some actions that uh, weren't very pretty. Uh, not only did I see it in my life, but I saw it in the lives of others. And it's that passage I want us to focus on this morning. If you have your Bible, turn to 1 Corinthians chapter 1. I want to read a few verses, and then we're going to look at the passage that we're going to focus on in chapter 3. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, look at me at verse 10. 1 Corinthians chapter 1, verse 10. Now I exhort you, brethren, by the name of our Lord Jesus Christ, that you all agree and there be no divisions among you, but that you may be made complete in the same mind and in the same judgment. For I have been informed concerning you, my brethren, by Chloe's people, that there are quarrels among you. Now, I mean this, that each one of you is saying, I am of Paul, I am of Apollos, I am of Cephas or Peter, I am of Christ. You could insert in there, I belong to Paul. I belong to Peter. I belong to Apollos. Verse 13, has Christ been divided? Paul was not crucified for you, was he? Or were you baptized in the name of Paul? And the writer goes on. Drop down to verse 18. For the word of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise and the cleverness of the clever I will set aside. Where is the wise man? Where is the scribe? Where is the debater of this age? Has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? Now turn over to chapter 3, please, and verse 18. This is where we want to spend our time this morning. Chapter 3, verse 18. Paul is concluding his argument that began in chapter 1. These divisions and factions that were based on personalities. He writes in verse 18, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish so that he may become wise. For the wisdom of this world is foolishness before God. For it is written, He is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. And again, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. So then, let no one boast in men, for all things belong to you, whether a Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death or things present or things to come. All things belong to you, and you belong to Christ, and Christ belongs to God. Before we walk our way through this passage, uh, let's just take a moment to commend our time of studies of the Lord. <clears throat> Father, we are thankful for your grace in our lives. We are thankful for your love and your watch care. We thank you for your word that challenges us and encourages us. I pray, Father, that as we study this passage together this morning, that you would guide our thoughts, that you would challenge us, that we might leave with a different perspective of our relationship with you and relationship with one another. Thank you again, Father, for your word. Bless our time of study, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. 
the first century church at Corinth was blessed beyond measure. The Apostle Paul had planted the church and had nurtured the church, spending about 18 months there. It was a gifted church. There were a number of great teachers who were part of that body. But the church, the folks in the church, were influenced by their culture. They seemed bent towards competition. Uh, Splinter groups formed around individuals, divided the church. They were exalting one teacher over another, saying, I can learn from this person, but I can't learn, don't want to learn from anyone else. And, And Paul puts this thought in a nutshell in verse 18 where he says, let no man deceive himself. The church, simply speaking, had an improper view of themselves. They were proud. They were arrogant. They were boasting in one teacher over against another. I'm convinced that lots of problems in the church could be eliminated if we had an accurate view of ourselves. It's just that simple. Notice he says, Let no man deceive himself. If any man among you thinks that he is wise in this age, he must become foolish. That comes from the Greek word moros. Verse 19, he talks about foolishness. comes from the Greek word moriah. We get our English word moron from that Greek word. Human wisdom as it's manifested in the church is moronic before God. The problem at Corinth is a problem that many churches have. People who think they are wise. They have their opinions about what the Bible teaches and what the church ought to be and what the Christian life ought to be. More often than not, it's just their opinion. It's not based on Scripture. Let's be clear. When Paul talks about wisdom here, he's not talking about mathematics or science, the ability to build something or paint a room. Those things don't need special enlightenment from God. What he's talking about is things in the spiritual arena, the salvation that God has provided, the spiritual life that we have in Jesus. When human wisdom becomes foolish and useless, it has to do with the things of God and trying to explain them. This church must consistently and constantly honor the Word of God in its teaching and its practice. Uh, Some years ago, the, the, the elders hammered out a doctrinal statement that Doctrinal statement is based on scripture as we see it. It guides us in our teaching and what we believe the Christian life is all about. God's, or Paul's point here is that if you think you're really smart and you approach spiritual things from a human perspective, you're just a moron. You're foolish. You must submit to the word of God and the spirit of God to understand the things of God. Then Paul uses two Old Testament quotes to support his contention. The first is from the book of Job. For it is written, he is the one who catches the wise in their craftiness. This quote comes from the speech of Eliphaz. And what Paul seems to be saying is that the wisdom of the world has a hidden agenda. It will lead you astray when it comes to spiritual things that God will catch it in its craftiness. 
he will reveal what is true and what is not. The second quote comes from Psalm 94, verse 11. In the context, the psalmist is writing about the, the, the elite, if you will, the, the intellectual, the politically powerful. He calls these people who bank on those kinds of things stupid and senseless in that psalm. And here he says, the Lord knows the reasonings of the wise, that they are useless. The word reasoning comes from the word, uh, has about the idea of dialogue. The conversation of the world seems persuasive. It, it sounds reasonable, but it's useless. Useless is a word that means a puff of air, a little wisp of wind that's soon gone. The wisdom of the world will not endure the test of time. If we're to function as a church, as individuals, as part of a body, we need to have a proper view of wisdom, a proper view of ourselves, a proper view of others that's based on the Scriptures and the Word of God, on how the world does things. Now, in the remaining verses, Paul is going to give the corrective, if you will, He will say, this is how the worldly wisdom was manifested in the church. You guys are getting into little cults, little areas, and following this teacher and that teacher and demeaning or disregarding the others. But here's what I want you to know, Paul says. First of all, your resource for maturity in ministry includes all of God's servants. Don't miss it. Your resources for maturity to growth in the Christian life, living life that pleases God and having an effective ministry, include all of God's servants. So then, let no man boast in men. He he couldn't say it any stronger. He tried. It has about the idea, do not ever let anyone boast in men. That was at the heart of the problem in Corinth. The world's wisdom was manifesting itself that way. This is an issue that has spanned the centuries. Throughout history, folks have found their identity and their significance in groups and following a particular charismatic leader. They get caught up with personalities, and Paul wants to expose that fallacy, that foolishness of of, uh, the world's wisdom. He wants to expand his readers' horizons. All things belong to you. We are not to boast in men as individuals. All things are ours as heirs of Jesus Christ. All things are to benefit us. It's almost as if Paul had uh, taken some signs and put it around the necks of Paul and Peter and, and Apollos. And that sign read, church property. (laughs) You see, those believers didn't belong to that individual. Those individuals belonged to the church as God's gift to the church. All these guys agreed. I mean, let's face it, they taught the same Old Testament. They They taught the apostles' doctrine. They also taught the same truth. But but these folks were going beyond doctrinal issues, attaching themselves to individuals 
on the basis of, basis of manufactured differences. Personality. Perceived ability. They, they honored one at the expense of the other. Paul is saying to choose one at the expense of another is foolishness. It's the way the world operates. In Corinth, it was, I am of Paul. I am of Apollos. I am of Peter. Later in church history, it was, I am of Luther. I am of Calvin. I am of Zwingli. Today, it's, I am of Piper. I am of Swindoll. I am of MacArthur. Put any name in there you want. Please don't misunderstand me. I want you to look for teachers who are godly men, who are faithful to the Scriptures, who demonstrate that in their lives. Their teaching is based on the Word of God. I'm not saying that you can't have a a favorite teacher, someone who communicates to you in in a special way. But the problem comes when our attitude and our action becomes exclusive and singular. We reject God's gift to the church. We follow one person. Paul is saying, how can there be division where there is no division? They're all God's gift to you. Here Paul is talking about the assembly at Corinth, isn't he? So let's bring it down to the assembly. Let's talk about Melanie Park. If you're here this morning and you have this attitude, I belong to Mark. I belong to Hud. I belong to Rick. Then you are manifesting the heart of the Colossian heresy and problem. Each of those men I mentioned are are faithful to the Scriptures, faithful to to Christ. They, they, They teach based on the Word of God. They've all signed off on our doctrinal statement. They follow that as their guide and their teaching. Each of them is part of this church family. Each of them is given to us by God as a gift. And if for some reason in your attitude, in your mind, in your action, you are elevating one or rejecting another, stop it. It's foolishness before God. For all things, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas, whether Luther or Calvin or Zwingli, whether Piper or MacArthur or Swindoll or Mark or Hud or Rick or others who teach here at Monley Park, they are all God's gift to us. There should be no division. After retiring from the Air Force, um, Barbara and I and our family moved to Denver, Colorado, and I went to Bible college. And the president spoke the first chapel that we had, and I have no clue as to what passage he preached from or what he said except for one line. And it's stuck with me all these years, and it's this. Learn everything you can from every man of God you can, every chance you can. Learn everything you can from every man of God you can, every chance you can. Now, 
Paul doesn't leave it with the Corinthian problem. He expands their horizons. He says, your resources for maturity and ministry are all God's servants. But he goes on to say that your resources for maturity, growth in the Christian life, and in ministry to others include all life situations. Notice, he said, whether Paul or Apollos or Cephas or the world or life or death, the, the world here is used of the physical universe. It has no ethical overtones. Everything in the world belongs to you. Not a perfect world. It's still in the grip of Satan. But it belongs to us with all of its wonders and its glories. It's a good gift. And we can learn from God's creation. The next time you walk outside and Look at the flowers and the valleys and the hills and rivers and the dry playa lakes. <laughs> mm. It's ours. The world belongs to us, and it's to be our teacher. And there's life and there's death. These things sum up what men instinctively cling to, life, and what they instinctively dread, death. But for us as believers, they are, no more, they are no longer puppets for our lives. What kind of life is he talking about? I think in the context of this passage, he's talking about the spiritual life. He's talking about salvation and the life I have because of my relationship with God through Jesus Christ. Remember the passage, uh, the high priestly, high priestly prayer in John 17? Jesus begins to pray for his disciples. It says, this is eternal life, that you may know him, the only true God and Jesus Christ whom you have sent. Eternal life is just not a, a period of time. It's a quality of life that knows God and lives daily based on that knowledge. Death is also mine. You might say, who wants it? <laughs> I think we sometimes forget what death is all about. You know what death does for the believer? One thing. Takes him or her to Jesus. Sometimes we have a messed up view of death. We hear of a believer who has a terminal illness and we're sad. And I understand the issue of separation. But think about it. That person is on his way to Jesus. Death is simply our servant that delivers us to the Savior. Paul concludes with the all things, things present, things to come. Things present are ours as well. What is it? Well, it's everything. It's all objects, all people, all situations, all events, all experiences of life for your good or for your blessing. You might even ask, the, the bad stuff, is that for us as well? One person put it rightly when he wrote, it is as if all things in life are multitude of servants, like pain and injury and sickness and grief, may at first have a strange look to us who do not know our royalty sufficiently. It is God who commissions them all and makes each one bring us some blessing. So that as kings unto God, we all lack for nothing. 
Paul is saying that everything in your present experience can be used by God to teach you something about him, something about life, something about relationships. In God's providential care for us, life's circumstances serve to enrich us. Barbara and I both became believers in our mid-30s, and we have uh, learned some lessons along the way about our relationship with one another, relationship with our children and grandchildren, about prayer. Six years ago this month, we got a call from our oldest son who was diagnosed with Hodgkin's lymphoma. It was stage four, Hodgkin's lymphoma. Our family has had all sorts of issues, but this was the first person in our family who had cancer. It, it was um, Hodgkin's lymphoma is one of the more treatable forms of cancer, but this was stage four. It was already in his bone marrow. And as he went through that six, seven, eight months of excruciating treatment, even though the distance separated us, we as a family learned some lessons about trust and about prayer and about family. As many of you know, he's been in remission now for five years. And uh, just last month, he sent a book to the publishers. You may or may not know he's a teacher of Greek and New Testament studies at a Christian college in Minnesota. Over the past two summers, he's authored a book on the issue of suffering, biblical suffering, and how God taught him lessons. And hopefully God will use that in the life of others as they read that to learn what Jeff learned. Things to come. What are they, you ask? I have no clue. (laughs) They haven't come yet. I think they're going to be great. Certainly heaven. But along the way, God will bring into our lives things that are ours that we can learn from and grow from. So do you have the picture? You have this group of believers in Corinth that have been influenced by the world. In their arrogance and in their pride, they've attached themselves to different teachers and there are divisions in the church. There's no ministry going on. You get that impression as we read the book of 1 Corinthians. And Paul is saying, what are you doing? It's insane. It's foolishness. You're poor. You're paupers. Because everything belongs to you. What an amazing, overwhelming picture of Christian riches. I want us to talk just a moment about the structure of these words. Because it's important for Paul. The structure of this long sentence begins in verse 21 with those words, All things, for all things belong to you. Triplet leaders. Triplet, world, life, death. Doublet, present, future. All things belong to you. And what I want you to understand is that Paul, in the way he's structured this grammatically, is making an important point. 
He wants them to understand the reality of the resources that they have as believers in Jesus Christ. What's what's available to them for life and for ministry? And if I can put it this way, stop acting like a moron. You have everything available to you. We could illustrate it by looking at uh, some books and in in bookends. You've got one bookend, all things belong to you. The grammatical structure, all things belong to you, the other bookend. And what's between the bookends? The substance, the books. And Paul wants to make a point and emphasize the point through the grammatical structure that he uses. And I would like to, too. But I fear that before lunch is over, you'll forget bookends and books. So I thought for a little while, what can I use to illustrate the structure that would cause you to remember this? That every time you think about this, you'll think about the riches that you have in Jesus Christ and the resources that you have. I love Oreo cookies. Now, before you say, Wisdom, you've lost it, just bear with me. Think about the composition of an Oreo cookie. You have that top chocolate biscuit or wafer, all things, and you've got the bottom one, all things. What's in the middle? That creamy filling. Now, you don't like Oreo cookies and you're here this morning. I'm sorry, I can't help you. But just think about this for a moment. And it's getting close to lunchtime. And I understand that. But just think about having four or five, in my case, six or seven, uh, some Oreo cookies and cold milk. And you sit down at the table with your cookies and milk. And you take out one and you nibble off the side and you throw it away. You take the second one, you take a bite, throw it away so on and so forth. You would say, that is just stupid. Because if you're like me, I'm going to eat this cookie and take the milk. Now, some people like to tear them apart, don't they? They take them apart and they lick off the center part and then they eat the... But the point is that it's the height of folly to have this delicious cookie and just nibble around the edges and throw it away. You're going to eat the whole thing. And that's Paul's point. All things belong to you. All things belong to you. And in the middle is the substance. All God's servants, all life situations belong to you for your good and for his glory. He finishes with verse 23 by pointing out that this is true because we belong to Jesus Christ. Jesus Christ belongs to God. There is no division. How can these people be divisive and factious? There is no division in the church over leaders or anything else. We're to be one. And all that I have is because of my birthright. I'm spiritually rich with magnificent resources because I'm an heir of Jesus Christ. Because I belong to him. 
and he belongs to God. Bertha Adams lived in a small frame house on the outside of a town where she lived. She lived alone, had no family, and no one knew any friends she had, but everyone knew who she was. She would be seen from time to time during the week, standing on a street corner, begging for money to buy food or to pay her meager bills. She could also be seen outside of the restaurants in the back, going through the trash, foraging for food, leftovers. One day, Bertha died, and because she was alone, no one found her for a couple of days, and and they did, the coroner came, and investigators came, and they got her body and took it away, and the investigators began to look at her house, determined what they could do with what she had. They had no known relatives at that time, at least none they knew about. So they began to sort through things, and they came to a dresser. In that dresser was a top drawer, and in that top drawer was a box. They opened the box, and in the box was cash, <laughs> lots of it, over $250,000 in cash, and two keys, two keys that were later determined to be to two different safe deposit boxes and two different banks. Because there were no relatives, they got permission from the first bank to open the safe deposit box, and they did, and what they found was more cash, not only cash but stock certificates. They went to the next bank and opened that safe deposit box. No cash, just stock certificates. When all was said and done, that cash and those certificates amounted to about $2.5 million. We hear a story like that and we say, that is, that is crazy. <laughs> that is foolish. For Bertha Adams to live the way she lived and to die the way she died and to have all of those resources available to her and not use them. But before we judge her too harshly, let's just take a, take a step back. Let's look at our own lives. Paul has told us this morning that God has given to us all of his servants as our teachers. All of life's situations belong to us to learn about him, to learn about life, to learn about relationships. The question is, are we using them? Our circumstances at this moment may be good or they may be not so good. We have assurance of our Heavenly Father and his word that we can use those circumstances to grow have an effective ministry. Right now I'm about to finish up a sermon and you're saying, okay, that's good. My goal was to communicate for sure. But more than that, my goal was to motivate you to think. See, some years ago this passage was a mirror to me and I didn't like what I saw. My goal was to motivate you to evaluate God's resources. Are you using them? Benefiting from them, learning from life, life experiences, and from 
the great teachers that we have here at Melanie Park. Your resources for maturity ministry include all God's servants and all life situations. Learn everything you can every, from every man of God or every woman of God you can, every chance you can. And learn everything you can from every life situation, every chance you can. You've got it all. Avail yourself of it. Use life and use these teachers that God has given to us to grow. To grow in your faith in order to have an effective ministry to impact our world for Jesus Christ. Father, we uh, give you thanks for the Apostle Paul and for this letter he wrote to the Corinthian church, a letter that in many ways is uh, problematic. It, It has so many problems that the church faced and was involved in, but it appears that it all started with this divisiveness that was brought on by a worldly approach to life and ministry. Thank you, Father, for the corrective, for showing us by the Spirit of God through the pen of Paul that everything is ours in this life. It was given to us by you, our great God, for our benefit. May we never shortchange ourselves. May we never live, spiritually speaking, like birth Adams, scrimping along on meager things that folks might throw out, but living fully, feasting on all that you've given to us for our growth and ministry, for our good and for your glory. Thank you again for this opportunity to worship. I pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.